How a Hop Earns Its Name A Sight Glass Article This is a collaborative project meant to highlight the network of artisans, scientists, and growers who support great beer. Rubens, Bruce, and I select a subject together. I write an in-depth piece here at the website, and Adam Robbins and Matt Lutton will interview one of the central players on Rubens podcast, also called Sightglass. Look for their interview with hop breeder Michael Ferguson coming soon. If Michael Ferguson gets his wish, the creamy sweet hop currently known by the clinical name HBC 1019 will one day be called something more poetic. If it's very if it's a very, very lucky hop, it will join the ranks of named hop varieties that become signature flavors defining the hoppy ales driving American craft brewing. For the moment, however, it's a mere aspirant, a talented but unproven performer who has yet to show she has what it takes. When her journey began, 1019 was just one of among th- uh, thousands of seedlings. Through a process of winnowing, she graduated into an elite class of experimental hops, beating huge odds. She has the qualities brewers say they like, and she has the vitality and yield to become a commercial hop. Yet 1019 still has a long way to go. Ultimately, proprietary hop varieties are products, and now she must win the hearts of brewers and drinkers. That process will take longer than the initial breeding, and it's usually a decade before a variety will become a named product. The world's most successful breeding program is conducted conducted by the Hop Breeding Company, a joint effort of Yakima Chief and John I. Haas. Citra was HBC's first great success, and it was followed by Mosaic, the two most important aroma hops in the U.S. Two breeders are intimately involved in these programs, Jason Peralt of the Yakima Chief side and Michael Ferguson on Haas's. For this inaugural site class article, we'll follow the progress of breeding HPC 1019 from seedling to glass as a way of understanding this long and certain process. Hop lingo. Here's a glossary of terms. Hill, a single plant. Cross, progeny from two known varieties. Hybrid, a plant from a cross. Dioecious, plants with separate female and male parents. Agronomics, the science of crop production. Rhizome, a hop's root stock. Trellis, a structure to support growing hops. Bale, 200 pounds of hops. Yield, the pounds of hops an acre produces. A single seed. The science of hop breeding is tricky. While it seems like it would be easy to just cross a couple favorite selections, mosaic and citra, for example, that's not how it works. Hop biology is complex, and as with humans, the offspring often do not look or behave much like the parents. In order to re- replicate a variety, growers must make cl- clones. It's the only way to ensure a new Cascade plant produces hops that taste like Cascade. And among hops, only the female plant produces cones breweries can use to make beer. Many people know this about hops, but they may not register its implications. Michael Ferguson points out the mind-bending reality. Every variety, Cascade, Citra, whatever, came from one plant. In species, like humans and hops, where mating requires separate male and female parents, Offspring's genomes are an unrepeatable blend of traits from parents. Biologists call such organisms dioecious. It's just like with 
people or with animals, Jason Peralt explains. If you have 10 brothers and sisters, there may be some similarities because you share a genetic background, but the way those genes recombine is unique to each individual. Since males are only good for breeding, if breeders want to cross those hops, the best they can do is use the mothers, who will both only contribute half the genome. They have to find males to pollinate them, and this creates the potential for fantastic variety. I can't directly cross Citra or Mosaic because all the commercial hops are female, Ferguson explains. I have to cross a male onto one of those, so I'm only going to have 25% Citra and 25% Mosaic. The male side is always an extrapolation based on close relatives. These aren't entirely random males, however. They are chosen from hops related to the ones they seek to replicate. Peralt describes this often lengthy process. It's a series of making a cross, maybe onto the original cultivar you're interested in, and then selecting both males and females from those crosses, and then making sib matings between the brothers and sisters, or maybe back crossing to the original parent again, and then making another round of selections. Agronomics represent the second and equally important challenge for a hop plant. It's not enough for a variety to produce hops that taste sublime in an IPA. They must produce enough hops per acre, 10 bales or 2,000 pounds seems to be the benchmark, grow well and resist diseases. In some cases, an especially vigorous variety with similar traits to another are worth pursuing. We certainly don't need another hop variety that doesn't yield well, Ferguson said. I don't need another 8-bale cascade. I'll take another 15-bale cascade. In order to produce a viable commercial hop, the cultivar must have qualities that make it perform as well in the field as it does in the class. 20,000 seedlings. The odds of finding a cross that offers great flavors and aroma and good agronomics are daunting. The only way to turn them in breeders' favor is with an enormous number of individual crosses. Ferguson selects the varieties he wants to work with and then begins making crosses. He focuses on certain varieties, but even with a small set, he can produce thousands of offspring. Each cross will produce upwards of 2,000 seeds per cross, he said. In the first year, he makes these crosses, placing a single seed in a small cell amid a tray of dozens. The seedling is the funnest part of breeding. I can walk down a cross of citra and mosaic and see 200 siblings, and then you can start to see trends in aroma. Ferguson doesn't move the early seedlings to a standard field, but instead plants them close together in a short trellis environment. Almost none of them will go forward, so that first year is one of elimination. Ferguson separates the males and females, judges them for vigor, and begins to assess their aroma. You're like a robot with an algorithm. When you know you're looking for a plant, when you know the plant you're looking for, you're like, you suck, you suck, you suck, you look interesting. Only 1-2% to of these seedlings will make the cut and head to the next round. In year 2, Ferguson takes those lucky 2% into a typical commercial field. Even at that vastly reduced number, he's still wrangling hundreds of plants. Most will only be grown on a single hill, that is, a plant. But some are so promising, Ferguson will fast-track them and plant seven hills. Hop plants don't produce well in the first year, so even with seven hills, he'll only end up with 10 to 20 pounds of hops. That's not much, but it's plenty to start brewing with. Haas has its own small brewery, and brewmaster Virgil McDonald will keep the mash tun humming to test the new crops as Ferguson selects possible winners. 50 to 80 of those second-year hops will go into beer, and McDonald has a standard formulation for test batches. 
They'll use pale malt, the same hopping regime, and a neutral yeast with identical targets in terms of bitterness and strength. We only brew with about 25% of the selection, Ferguson said. Flavor is the hardest thing to anticipate. Aroma doesn't translate very well to flavor. Over the course of the year, they taste through those beers, looking for a few to advance to the next stage. And then there were five. From those hundreds, Ferguson cuts the list down to, uh, in year three, to just a handful, called advanced selections. He selects the, these based on preliminary assessment of plant vigor and the hops' performance in beer. Now he needs to determine if the hops can really cut it as a commercial cultivar. To do this, he plants seven hills of each variety in different locations to see how they perform in terms of yield and so on. Once we know we have an exciting flavor, we want to make sure the agronomics are good. Because hop plants take two years to mature and bear a full crop, this stage takes Ferguson through the end of year four. During that time, they'll continue to brew with these hops and offer breweries small amounts for test batches. From the roughly half dozen they have in advanced selection, breeders then select two varieties to move forward. For four to five years, these hops have been under Ferguson's microscope, sometimes literally, as he mentioned, measures them against stringent metrics of flavor, aroma, and agronomics. Now Haas strings an acre of these hops and grows them for another two years. This is the moment the hop gets its experimental name. For the hop breeding company, they begin with HBC. It's also when the expense spikes, and here's where Haas offers to collaborate with breweries. Hops are unusual in that they are a highly specialized crop. They're bred for a single purpose and consequently have only one class of interested buyer, breweries. For decades, up until 15 years ago or so, the breweries driving the market were industrial lager breweries. They used hops only for bitterness, not flavor or aroma, which were generally anathema to their consumers, and so they only cared about alpha acids, the higher the better. They funded breeding research and demanded ever more bitter hops with the sole purpose of having to buy fewer of them. For growers, it was a catch-22, but one they couldn't escape. Craft breweries changed the calculation. Though a small fraction of the beer market, their focus on IPAs starting a decade ago meant they were in using enormous amounts of hops. Eventually, they started buying more than the big companies. To the growers' relief, they didn't care about buying fewer hops and seemed keen to keep on buying more. They cared about flavor and aroma. The success of Citra, released in 2007 and now the best-selling U.S. variety, clued breeders and growers into the future direction of the market. The future were IPA hops, intense, tropical, and fruity. The money is in flavor-forward hops right now, Ferguson told me when I asked what kind of hops they were targeting for commercial development. I would definitely default towards screening varieties on an IPA basis because what it boils down to is you either get a flavor outcome or you don't. Craft breweries, once a bit player in the hop market, now drive everything about it from breeding to new hop products. And that's why when Ferguson needs a partner in determining whether one of his elite hops has commercial prospects, he turns to craft breweries. Sponsoring HBC 1019. Hop breeders rely on brewers to guide their selection. They are in a natural partnership where both need the other to thrive. When breweries visit during the year, and especially during hop selection, they stop into the Haas Innovation Brewery to sample the latest fruits of the experimental program. When they cotton to a particular variety, Haas may send them home with a few pounds to try a beer. If they really like a variety, they can sponsor a hop. 
Sponsorship is a way for breeders and brewers to share the cost of an acre of the new cultivar. Brewers pay a, redu a reduced price, and that helps defray the expense of stringing them up, which costs around eight to $10,000 an acre. Rubens and Odell are sponsoring HPC 1019, and they'll each have an acre to play with. In the first year, which in 1019's case was harvested last fall, the yield will be low and result in a small crop. Sponsorships last three years, however, and in years two and three, a brewery will receive enough to make a decent amount of beer. That allows breweries to try the hops in a variety of different contexts, at different points in the brewing process, and in combination with other varieties. This becomes valuable R&D Haas can use to market the hop. The breweries sponsoring 1019 both see sponsoring a hop in a kind of civic spirit. To help, the, uh, to help support the industry in this small way is the least we could do, Rubens Adam Robbing said. The future of our industry is based on innovation, and hop innovation is really a large driver of the craft beer industry in recent times. Imagine a world without Citra. Odell's Brendan McGivney agreed. It's important for us to do what we can to help the development of new varieties, because we know they're necessary for the industry. To me, it's just sharing the risk with breeders. Of course, it's also a lot of fun. If you've never visited a hop field, it's hard to communicate what a powerful spell those little green cones can cast over the beer lover. Robbings had one of those experiences when he first encountered this hop. 1019 was totally unique. A broad, sweet, tropical, almost candied, fruit-forward aroma is what really grabbed me when I rubbed, the, rubbed it in the field. It was unique to pique my interest in a field of green with my lupulin-covered hands, nose, and face. There's something exciting about the prospect of entirely new flavors and how you might use them in a beer. He added, it's a great example of what we call brewing glass backward by designing beers from the hot field, literally. Robbings, McGivney, and Ferguson all commented on 1019's intense aromas and all invoked Sabro's vanilla slash coconut quality. When they sampled it, Odell captured these tasting notes. Pina Colada, tropical. Sabro mosaic-like coconut, melon, banana, caramelized plantains, really intense, potent, Malibu rum. After all the lead-up, I wanted to taste 1019 too, and fortunately we timed this post to coincide with the release of Ruben's first brew, Puffs of Classified. It's quite a hop with a distinctive caramelized sugar note. The dominant quality is dark rum, but it features shafts of other flavors as well. One is sweet banana, but more like the little intense ones you find in India, a note that at turns seems more like coconut or vanilla, and very ripe pineapple. One could imagine the beer served uh, with a little cocktail umbrella. I was also impressed to find nothing savory in 1019 at all, one of the dangers of mo modern cultivars. Its sweetness is probably going to be too much on its own, but used in combination with fruity hops, it should delight fans of sweet, hazy, and milkshake IPAs. A real name? It will be a few years at the earliest before HBC 1019 earns a name like Talus, Sabro, or Mosaic. At this point, her fate is in drinker's hands. Rubens and Odell will have three years to test the hop and see whether customers respond to its profile. If customers like it, Haas will take a chance and begin planting more acreage, opening it up to a broader market. This intermediate state, where the hop exists at, in experimental status but is commercially available, will last years. At some point, HBC will decide whether to name it and begin an active marketing campaign or relegate it to its unnamed status. Even then, a numbered experimental hop may not fade away completely.
HPC 472 is a good example, Ferguson said. That was a Sistro Sabro. It's very oaky and vanilla. It was, very, it was a very exciting variety, but it leveled off at around 50 acres. We'll keep it around as, as, as HBC 472, but it will probably never get a name. The breeding and agronomics, though they take a half decade, are actually the speedy part. You can get a handle on whether a hop has de decent agronomics by year five or six, but even, at the most ex but even on the most exciting hops like Sabro and Talus, it's taken five years to build the market. HPC 1019 is in year five. Will she be one of the very, very lucky ones and one day, perhaps around 2026, earn her name? It's all up to you.